Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. We have been studying in the Sermon on the Mount in Sunday school, and I would like to lay on our hearts these two verses as we think today concerning incentives to evangelism. Tonight, beginning at 6.15, David Walters will be with us in a great soul-winning conference. Brother Dave is a heart, a man with a heart for souls and for people, one of the great preachers of our day. And uh, Dave is pastor of one of the great churches in Louisville. And he has on his heart the souls of men. Year after year, his church is one of the leaders in soul-winning evangelism in Kentucky. Uh, for a number of years, he spent in the uh, Navigators International work. He sometimes, he, sometimes he is called Mr. Walking Bible. I hope you will be here and be challenged by this. And this morning, in the first session, we might say, of the Soul Winning Conference, I want to speak on the subject, incentives to evangelism. Why do we need to go after the lost? Why do we need to reach them? May we bow together in a moment of prayer. Our Father, we thank Thee for the privilege of prayer. We ask that the Holy Spirit would move in this place today. Thank You for the great opportunity You've given us to assemble together in a free America. And now may Thy Spirit move across the heartstrings of us all. And may some who have never been saved openly trust Jesus today. Some who have already been saved but have not openly confessed Thee, be led by Thy Spirit to make that profession today. Place it upon the people's hearts, all of us to respond to the motivation, the incentives of God's Word to reach the lost at any cost. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Enter in at the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because narrow is the way, narrow is the gate, and hard is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Now, I want you to notice that the Sermon on the Mount is not a plan of salvation. It is a plan of service. When we examine carefully Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, we discover that this section was given not to the lost, not to the multitude, but to save people. In chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, we have the key to understanding the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus said, or in which the Scripture narrative says, and seeing the multitudes... He went up into a mountain, and when it was said, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Seeing the multitude, he left them. He went up into a mountain. I suppose to be away from the multitude, to be alone with God, as was his wont many times. And when his disciples came to him, he opened his mouth and began to teach them. And he taught them the way of the kingdom man. He says, This is 
the way a kingdom man operates. This is what a kingdom man is to expect. These are the relationships of the man who is a child of God, who is a born again kingdom man. You've heard people say, well, I'll just live by the Sermon on the Mount, or I'll live by the Ten Commandments. This is not possible for a person who is not saved. The Sermon on the, on the Mount is filled with prescriptions that are for those who have had a changed heart, who have been redeemed by the power of the grace of God. So when we come to chapter 7, just before Jesus tells us about the narrow road, he talks about the golden rule. He says, therefore, all things whatsoever you would that men do to you, do even so unto them. For this is the law and the prophets. In other words, Jesus is saying, you've heard this, I tell you this. You've heard it, you shall not kill, but I say whosoever is angry in his heart uh, has committed murder already. In other words, he has removed righteousness from the externals and placed it in the heart. He says the kingdom man is a man who has had a changed heart, who is a new man in Christ. And then in this little section, verses 13 and 14, he says, as it were, don't be surprised when you've come into the kingdom if you find it's a narrow way. Don't be surprised if you find you have entered a straight gate and the way is narrow. For broad is the way that leads down to destruction. Many there be that go in thereat. But narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. Now he is speaking to people who have already been saved, who are already on the kingdom road. And he's saying, don't be surprised at what you've discovered. He says, in effect, to be saved and to be a kingdom man makes one different from the world. He doesn't have the same standards. He doesn't have the same customs. He doesn't follow the same fashions. He doesn't have the same ambitions. He is a new man in Christ. And he's on a narrow road. And that narrow road leads home. And if you look around, you'll find the broad road that leads down, down, down to destruction. Many there be that go in there at. But you're on a narrow road that leads home to life and life eternal and life abundant. The interesting thing about these two roads is they run parallel. Sometimes the artists have sketched drawings and they say you stand at a crossroads, you come to a crossroads in life, this road leads to life eternal and this road leads to death and destruction. And sometimes this passage is used to support that. I think that is a beautiful picture. And there are certainly many crossroads we come to in life. But the road that leads to life and the road that leads to death is not a crossroads, they are parallel. And there's a road that's a broad road and everybody is on it. You don't have to do anything to get on it, you were born on it. And when you come to the age of knowing right from wrong, you're on that road that leads to destruction and unless your life is changed by the pulling, tugging power of the Holy Spirit, you'll never be on the narrow road that leads to life and leads to home. But when you come to the cross of Christ and you see Jesus dying for you, buried for you, 
raised from the grave for you, and you receive him as Savior and Lord, and he comes to dwell in your heart by faith. You're on that road that leads to destruction and death. Suddenly, you have repented of sin. You've done an about face, and you're on a narrow road that leads to home. And all along are the people on the broad road, and they're trying to get you off, and they're trying to sidetrack you, and they're trying to uh, pull at you and tug at you. That's the reason there's friction in a Christian's life. That's the reason Jesus gave many warning injunctions to a person who's saved. And right here he is saying to a kingdom man, broad is the road that leads down to destruction, that's the road you were on. Narrow is the road that leads home to life, that's the new road that you're on. Don't be surprised at it, don't be shocked at it. But what we do need to do is be aware of it and be aware of its difference and then so yield ourselves to the controlling power of the Holy Spirit that he will enable us to walk as a kingdom man. Now as we think of this, and we study more and more closely the scriptural teachings and injunctions concerning the task of evangelism, we become aware that evangelism includes the wide scope of making disciples, conviction, surrender, church membership, growth toward maturity, the evangelized becoming flaming evangels to go out and reach the lost for Christ. There is one supreme business of the church, just one, our supreme business is not to worship. Now certainly we will have to worship. It's the second nature of a believer to want to worship. It's just like that's an expression of love. It's just like when you love your wife, you're going to express that to her. You're going to love her. You want to be with her. And when you love Jesus, you want to be with him. And you want to be with his people. And there will be a, something that draws you together. But the supreme business of the church that Jesus built is that of making disciples, going into a world that is dark and perverse and bringing them to Jesus Christ. It is being salt and light in a world that is impalatable to the things of God and a world that is darkened and perverse and away from God. And so our main supreme task is evangelism. Well, what is evangelism? Evangelism includes missions at home, soul winning around the world, Stewardship training until the whole personality is yielded to the cause of Jesus Christ. And of course, that includes laying our talents on the altar. That includes laying our tithe on the altar. That includes yielding our time to Christ. And an anchoring program that anchors our lives in Christ, training us to grow up to be what God wants us to be. This is the reason we have training union. A training union time when we grow in Christ-likeness. If you've been in Sunday school for many years, but you've never been in training union, you're missing some of the greatest spiritual blessings that can come to your life. Sunday school is where we study the Word of God, applying its specific truths to our everyday living and so on. But training union is taking that Word of God and applying it where the rubber hits the road where life's uh, problems come. It is taking God's Word and applying it to doctrine, taking God's Word and applying it to how we live for Christ in the factories and in the schools and how we go out and take that Word to others. It is the built-in service training. I encourage you to be in training because it's the anchoring program of evangelism. 
Evangelism is the whole task, not just of going out and talking to somebody about Jesus, as important as that is. It is not simply waiting to see someone walk down an aisle, as important and vital as that is. Evangelism is not only seeing one buried with Christ by baptism in the waters, but evangelism includes the whole ministry of bringing someone out of the world, letting the Holy Spirit take the world out of their hearts, putting the Word of God in their hearts, and sending them back into the world to become flaming evangels for Jesus Christ. That's what evangelism is. And Jesus said, go ye into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There are four incentives to evangelism that I would like to lay on our hearts this morning. Number one, the ruin of the soul. Number two, the reign of sin. Number three, the requirement of the saved. And number four, the return of the Savior. First of all, the ruin of the soul. If we're to be effective in evangelism, if we're to be effective in our work for the Savior, then we must have a conviction of the lost condition of the souls of men. The Bible tells us that in the beginning, God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he them. Male and female created he them. There was nothing to mar the image of God in man. There was nothing sinful or wicked in man's life. We were pure and perfect before God. And then sin came. And sin passed upon all men. And you and I became disarranged in our minds, in our thinking, in our lives. And we got involved, engrossed in sin. Now, the Bible speaks of the ruin of the soul, not in the Romanish concept. The Romanish concept simply says, every man, boy, every man and woman, boy and girl that ever was to live was present in the loins of Adam and Eve. And when they took of that forbidden fruit, you and I took of that forbidden fruit. Therefore, original sin passed upon us, and uh, we're guilty of Adam and Eve's sin. The Scripture doesn't suggest this at all. Also, the ruin of the soul does not mean what modern philosophers mean when they talk about uh, man having a problem inside of him. Uh, actually, uh, they say uh, we have a, a spark of good in us, and you plant that spark of good in a good environment, you give him some good education, you surround him some uh, uh, nice places, and you give him a good house to live in, and a nice car to drive, and a good school to go to, and you help him study and so on, and uh, pretty soon he'll blossom out and really become something glorious. What you really have is an educated devil, and a devil that lives in a nice home, and has a nice job, and has a sharp vocabulary because his nature has never been changed. The Bible says man is ruined in sin. He is selfish. His whole being is darkened and depraved. And men and women outside of Jesus Christ do not have the strength of character. They do not have the, the grace of God to help them until there is the moving in of the Holy Spirit in that person's life. And the Holy Spirit begins a work of redemption. God's Spirit inside of a man bringing conviction and drawing that man to Jesus Christ. This is what the Bible means by the ruin of the soul. 
And beloved, you're not going to win somebody. A person is not saved because you give them a good environment. A person is not saved just because he goes to church or joins the church. Now, it's important to go to church, and I think a good place to hear the message of the Word of God is in church. But there are many people that go to church who are not saved. The memory verse in the Sunday school lesson this morning was, not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. The will of the Father which is in heaven is that we might repent of sin and believe on Jesus because Jesus was God's only remedy for sin. There is no other remedy for sin. There's no remedy for the sin of your life. In Macbeth, you have Lady Macbeth looking at her hands after she has had part in the death of the king. And she looks at her hands with the stains and she says, out, 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 spot. The blood is still there. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Only Jesus' blood is efficacious to take away our sins. Man is ruined in sin and needs a Savior. Secondly, the Bible tells us that sin is reigning in our life. In Psalm 51, 5, in sin did my mother conceive me. In Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? In Ephesians 2, 3, we are by nature the children of wrath. And the Bible says not only is the soul of man ruined by sin, but sin is reigning in the lives of men today, making of man a convict of sin. The Bible tells us that Cain killed Abel. Cain was so sold out to sin that he could no longer avoid the tyranny of what happened in his life. The Bible says that Abel offered unto the Lord a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. What was that excellent sacrifice? It was blood. It was the blood of Jesus that cleanses from sin. And Abel offered that excellent sacrifice and Cain, in jealousy, killed Abel. Samson is a classical example of a man ruined and a life who's, in whose life, uh, in, in, a man in whose life sin reigned. He was a Nazarite from the, his mother's womb. <clears throat> but I don't know how much of a personal relationship Samson ever had to the Lord God. The Bible doesn't really tell us. We know this. The little thread of sin began to wrap itself around Samson's life. And little by little by little, Samson came under the power of that sin until finally he was enchained and enslaved. That's what sin does. Now, beloved, you put a little cord around your hands, maybe a little thread, and I, I say, uh, uh, suppose I'd call Foy up here and I'd say, Foy, I'm, I'm just going to put a little thread around your hands. And, I, and, and then I'd put one thread, I'd say, Foy, see if you can break it. And he'd break it. I'd put his hands back together and put two threads around him. And I'd say, Foy, see if you can break that thread. And he tries a little bit, and pretty soon he breaks it. 
I put his hands back together and I take that same little thread and I wrap it around and around and around and around. And I'll say, Foy, see if you can break that thread. He tries and he tries, but he can't break it. You see, that same little thread that once could easily be broken has now enchained him. That's what sin does. That's what sin does in life. And that's what is meant in the scriptures when it talks about sin taking its toll in men's lives, sin being exceedingly sinful, and men outside of Christ are held in the bondage of sin. They can't break that bondage. They can't break that thread. Oh, they can reform themselves. They can quit their drinking. They can quit cussing. Uh, they can quit swearing. They can quit some uh, filthy habits but they can't change their heart. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And you and I have the message that can change men's lives. That's the reason Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Christ has the power to change men's lives. In his book, America's Spiritual Recovery, Edwin Elson, the pastor of President Eisenhower, a number of years said, it is an axiom of history that every war is followed by a moral sag. The greater the war, the greater the sag. Any man with any power of perception at all knows that we have been living for quite some time in a period of moral sag and deterioration when, rain, when sin is making a rain in people's lives. J. Edgar Hoover at one time the director of the FBI said, in America, there's one major crime every four seconds. For every one dollar given to churches, we spend $10 on crime. Juvenile delinquency is on the upswing. And in his book, Henry Richet, America, American Youth in Trouble states, the main cause of juvenile delinquency is the absence of religion. He says, and I quote, we speak of the red peril and the yellow peril, dangers on the outside, when the most insidious and devastating peril lies inside the United States of America, rising from the godlessness in the training of so many of our nation's youth, their lack of spiritual nourishment, their ignorance of the truth of God's Word, the abject void of prayer in their lives. Why is sin reigning? Because we have ignored the scriptural injunction, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And beloved, let me say this. Some of you have had disappointments in your lives. You have placed spiritual investment in your children. You've taught them the Word of God. You've given them God's message. And then they come to a certain age in life when they begin to throw that off and, and, and maybe tend to rebel. And you wonder, well, what does this mean? I thought the Scripture taught that you train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. You know what I believe that means? I don't believe that means that if you train a child up and you give him the Scriptures and you give him the Word of God and all of that, that he will never be able to get his life out of kelter with God's Word. I don't believe that means that. I believe what it does mean is that you have given him scriptural injunctions that are part of his life. 
They are impressed upon his heart. They're in his mind. They're part of his makeup. And there is no way in God's world he'll ever get away from the fact that those things are on his life and on his mind. And all of his life, all of his days, he'll have to deal with that inside. It may cause some conflict internally when he gets away from God. Those internal things will draw him back. When he rebels against the will of God, those teachings and truths that you have impressed upon his heart will draw him back. Now, he doesn't have to listen to that inner voice. He can totally rebel, but he still has that etched on the memories of his soul. So give him the word. And beloved, when we go and talk to a lost person about Jesus Christ and give them the word of God, now, that, now, God doesn't promise to bless our testimony. But when we give them the Word of God and we tell them it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. And we say to them that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we show them that in the word of God, and God's Holy Spirit takes that word and gets it into their heart. That person is responsible for what they've heard. Now they may not respond. They may not yield at that moment to the Lord Jesus. But God's Holy Spirit has begun a work. I remember before I was saved, the preacher came to my home. Uh, a Jewish lady on the road, to, on, a, on a train going to Texas, uh, going to Florida rather, uh, had, uh, had talked with me and asked me if I were a Christian. I wasn't a Christian. And uh, she, I noticed she was typing a letter. And I noticed, I, I didn't really notice too much, but I found out later what was happening. And I noticed, I remember back now what she did. She was typing a letter, and I learned later that she was typing a letter to a preacher in Louisville and telling that preacher that she had met a young boy on a train who said he wasn't a Christian. She gave him the address in Louisville, and some weeks later, when I got back to Louisville, that preacher came to see me. And he sat down with me from the Word of God and showed me from God's Word how to be saved. Now, I don't know why, but I didn't receive Jesus that day in my home. I didn't trust the Lord that day, but I began to go to church. I began to hear the Word of God. I began to hear what God was saying. And when that man would preach and point his finger out there, I'd try to duck and hide because I thought he was talking to me when in reality he didn't even know I was in the room. But God's Holy Spirit did. You see, the reign of sin in my life had caused rebellion. But the Holy Spirit plummeted to the depths of that rebellion with his Word, the Word of God. That's the reason it's important for us to take the Word and go to people. Talk to them about Jesus. Win them to Christ. The reign of sin. Men are away from God. They need to be brought back to Christ. Thirdly, the requirements of disciples, of discipleship. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. If any man will come after me, let him take up his cross. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Christ has no hands but our hands to do his work today. He has no feet but our feet to lead men in his way. We are God's plan. You know the legend. It's only a legend. When Jesus went back to the glory after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, 
some of the angels met Jesus and welcomed him back home to heaven. And then they said, uh, but Lord, what plan do you have? You just went to one little tiny place in the earth over in Palestine. What plan have you got for the people of India and the people of Africa and the people of, of other places that didn't get to hear you when you were there? What plan do you have for them to hear? And Jesus said, well, I told Peter and James and John to go, to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And one of the angels said, but, but, but Lord, suppose Peter goes back fishing. And suppose James and John go back to their nets. And suppose they don't go. The Lord Jesus said, I have no other plan. I have no other plan. You see, beloved, you and I are his plan. And contingent upon accepting discipleship in the kingdom of God is the, is the uh, obedience to the command, go ye, go ye into the, all the world and make disciples of the nations. And that world begins the moment you walk out of the Ford walls of this church, it begins on the street, it begins at your home, it begins next door, and it goes across the city, it goes across the county, it goes across the state, it goes across the nation, it goes across the ocean, unto every land, every man, every woman, until all have heard. That's the commission. Incentives to evangelism, Jesus said, go, go. Go ye into all the world. That's what my master told me to do. That's what your master told you to do. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's get up and go for Jesus' sake. There's one other incentive that I want to lay on our hearts before we go, and that is the return of the Savior. Jesus is coming again. I don't know the day. I don't know the hour, but he's coming. It may be he'll come before the midnight of this Lord's day, February the 22nd. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we didn't have to go to bed tonight? You know, I look forward to the time we don't have to sleep anymore. I get so tired of having to go to bed every night and get up every morning. I never am ready to go to bed. And I'll tell you, it, 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 whenever, whenever I wake up in the morning, I think of all the things that have to be done. And I think, Lord, how are we going to ever get all these things done today? And then I go to bed the next night and I have to bow before the Lord. And I say, Lord, there all these things I didn't get done, all these people that didn't get visited, and all the folks that I didn't get seen, and, and so on and so on. One day that'll all be over. And we'll be in the presence of Jesus forever. I don't know when that's going to happen. It could happen today. Jesus is going to come again. He's coming in the glory, and, and he's coming to take unto himself those who are his own. Yesterday we stood by an open grave. This precious Christian lady had given testimony of her faith in Jesus. I'm so thankful I was able to say to those who were heartbroken, we stand by this grave. It's an open grave today. One day it's going to be open again. I don't know whether the dirt will be un opened or not, but I know the casket will be opened and, and that, that the, contents, the contents in that casket will be gone. There's going to be an empty grave here where we, what we sow in dishonor will be raised in honor. What we sow a mortal body will be raised in immortal body because death will be swallowed up in victory when Jesus comes again. 
But I want to tell you something else on the other side of that story. When Jesus comes again, there's not going to be anybody else to weak, pick weak and win to the Lord. Our winning days will be over. You can't win your next door neighbor then. You can't win that person you've talked with and loved then. You can't win that person you've worked with then. It's all a thing of the past. We have to do it now. We have to reach people now. There's an old country song that uh, says, wait a little longer, please, Jesus. There are so many lost in sin. Wait a little longer, please, Jesus. There are so many lost in sin. And as much as I look forward to Christ's glorious coming, I feel like saying, Lord, wait a little longer. There's a man that lives over on this street I've prayed for, and Lord, he's not saved yet. Oh, God, wait a little longer until we can get to him again with the gospel. Lord, wait a little longer. There's a, there's a son of, of one of the families of our church. He, he is away from God. I don't know whether he's ever been saved or not. His mother and daddy are heartbroken over him. Lord, wait a little longer until that son can come home to you. Lord, wait a little longer until some of our young people who have said, I'll go, I'll go as missionaries until, Lord, they've had the opportunity to train themselves and complete their education and go over to Japan and go over to Malaysia and go over to Africa and go over here and there and tell them of Christ. Lord, wait a little longer until we can go with the gospel. I don't know when Jesus is coming, but what we do, we must do now. We must win them to Christ now. And I want to lay that on our hearts, every one of us. God, put upon our soul the incentives of evangelism. Men are lost in sin. They are chained in sin. Christ has told us to go. Christ may come any moment. Let's get up and go in Jesus' name. May we pray. Every head bowed, every eye closed for a moment. Our Father, we thank Thee for the great privilege of studying the Word of God and declaring it in song, in sermon. Oh, Father, today, may Thy Holy Spirit ring at our hearts and may we sense the presence of the precious Savior speaking to us. And Father, we just pray that you'll give liberty in this invitation for some to step out and say, I want to take a stand for Christ today, a new stand for him to serve the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand, please? Now listen carefully to the invitation. <clears throat> We're going to sing, Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Here is God's invitation. If you've never been saved, Jesus died on the cross to forgive you of your sins. He took your sin burden in himself, and he paid for your sins. You don't have to pay for your own sins. He paid for them. And then he died for them. For the wages of sin is death. Three days later, he was raised from the grave. And he justified you through his resurrection. 
And if you'll come to him by faith and say, I want to receive the risen Savior into my heart, he'll forgive you and save you. Would you do that? And friend, if you've already been saved, you've trusted Christ, but you have not made it public. In the kingdom of God, there are no secret disciples. They're all open. I want to encourage you to come and let Jesus be known publicly. Just take an open stand for Christ. Will you do it? Saying, I want to follow Jesus in baptism. I want to take a new stand for God. There are some of you who, have a, who need a church home. You need to come and say, I want Glendale Baptist Church to be my church home and help build a strong soul winning church here for the glory of Christ. I want to urge, encourage you to come today. Will you do it? While we begin to sing, there may be someone here who would say, Christ has already spoken to my heart. I know what I should be doing. But somehow I'm not living up to the privileges of the child of God. I need a deeper walk with Christ. I need to be a greater, a more faithful soul winner. And I want to come and take that stand. You do what God tells you to do while we begin to sing. Who will come for the king this morning?